Hey, this is Jeremy from Reasonable Doubts. What you're about to hear is a follow-up episode to last week's show on the topic of free will and determinism. In the past week, we've received several thoughtful, challenging, and lengthy emails from our listeners who took issue with the version of determinism that we argued for in episode 29, and we anticipate receiving even more after this episode airs. But because the follow-up we planned for this week was recorded before episode 29 was even released, we of course could not share any of your feedback here. But on behalf of my fellow Doubtcasters, I just wanted to express how much we appreciate the responses that we've received so far, and we will take the time to share some of those responses on next week's episode. Thanks again, and we hope you enjoy this week's Reasonable Doubts, featuring Tom Clark from the Center for Naturalism. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra, you can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean, Yellow, and Luke Galen. Hi. So, in our previous episode, Free Willy and Determinator Part 1, um, we uh, talked some about determinism and, and free will, but we didn't get to the moral implications associated with a hardcore determinist worldview like, uh, like the three of us seem to share. And not all naturalists do. Uh, no, no. I, I, we need to acknowledge that, that there is diversity uh, amongst naturalists. Yeah. I, I will say I don't feel bad going further and saying, though, I think they're wrong. <laughs> well, and I think they're demonstrably wrong. I, I think uh, um, accepting determinism, unfortunately or not, is necessitated by a consistently naturalistic worldview. Right. But there are people who disagree, but it's and a, we'll look at some of those disagreements. It's a very hard thing to do, and, and I, it took me a very long time to just decide that, yes, in fact, I'm going to, to follow the evidence because you're giving up a lot of things, apparently. You're giving up things you never had. Well, yeah, but things that, that I thought I had. and Well, um, it parallels the religious discussions we've had in that that most people kind of like us, I think, follow the evidence, however reluctant right. it might be and however negative the implications might be because we value the evidence in the same way that the, that the, the religious beliefs are sometimes reluctantly rejected. I think that in some cases free will is reluctantly rejected or yeah. we recognize that, yes, it feels free, but still the evidence seems to conclude that oh, much of that is an illusion. And, and frankly, if it feels free and that's that's all I know, then I, I don't really see the problem. If I feel like I have the illusion of free will, then I have the illusion of free will and and that's fine. It doesn't. I don't feel like a meat puppet Right. Even though I know that I am a meat puppet. But what happens when we come to questions of morality, yeah. questions of law, questions of um, crime and punishment? That is uh, the sticky it part. does become a problem because if 
we are not absolutely free, right? if our choices are determined, then what sense does it make to say this person was responsible for their actions? Take, for example, the Texas sharpshooter. Charles Whitman. Yeah, this is uh, this is kind of almost an extension of our discussion last time with the Phineas Gage problem of the clear brain injury leading to clear behavioral changes. Uh, and uh, the, Whitman was a case where the guy went ramp, went amok in 1966 and shot up a bunch of people. This uh, guy in the bell tower. In the bell tower yeah. of the University of Texas. So mm-hmm. after this happened uh, and they they killed him, they did autopsies and tried to do you know a, a reconstruction of his last days of what was going on and they find a lot of contributing factors he was he was taken he was an alcoholic he was kicked out of the marines he had some abusive backgrounds so there's environmental type i guess right. you could say influences there but then one of the more intriguing ones was that they found a, an amygdaloid tumor a tumor in the part of the brain that is in the limbic system that that is uh controls a lot of emotional right. like fight or flight fear reactions and uh so it led some people to conclude that maybe he some of his behavior might have been caused by abnormal brain activity that caused him yeah, to be aggressive. Sure. And I think that view is supported by um, the diary that he left behind. Which is strange in its detachment almost from himself. Like he's saying, I can't explain why I feel these right. violent urges, but yet I'm compelled to, mm. to oh, do them. But actually, I, I think there's some retention of sympathy and, and love that you can find in there. For so example, he, his mother he murders his, his own mother and his own wife, yet he's in his suicide note, he's writing how he he made a great effort to make sure that the murder was painless, that she didn't suffer. From that they were very good people and that right. he saw right. that and he did he it. He says that he loved them and he was sorry that he did it. And then – He just couldn't control the impulse to, yeah. to kill? And he even left money behind. He willed in – this, in this suicide note, he said he wanted his earthly belongings to go towards research on the brain to try to find out what happened wow. to him – and to wow. prevent this happening from other people. Mm-hmm. So this was premeditated, this massacre. And there's some part of him that feels this rage but is trying to resist it, like realizes it's wrong and abnormal and that it shouldn't be the case. And, and you can imagine if yourself, if, if there were uh, a way that somebody could have installed electrodes in your brain, you might find yourself, if, given what we talked about last time about the causality in the brain, you might find yourself doing actions after which you're forced to confabulate them. Right. And if they're extreme enough, how? what would you, if you just you know, found yourself having an impulse to hurt somebody, how would you rationalize right. that afterwards? It might right. seem perplexing to you if right. you did this own th- yourself. A question I share with my philosophy class is, look at the legal test for the insanity plea. Hmm. And would the Texas sharpshooter actually qualify? Would he be able to plead not guilty for reason of insanity. I'm not sure he would because part of the test there is do you recognize um, that your actions are morally wrong? And he did. Yeah. And we make a distinction often between uh, the psychological explanations versus legal definitions right. of things. Definitely. And right. so many people are like when you have a case where somebody's clearly psychotic or like to take the woman who drowned their kids in the bathtub. She was hearing voices that told her to drown all her kids, uh, the right. Andrea Yates case, you know. And, and then she didn't think that way when she was properly medicated or not under stress. Mm-hmm. So many people can look at that and say, oh, well, there's a case where, yes, her brain right. illness influenced her to We're to comfortable with, with some of that stuff going on. But what on. really, if, there's, if, there, if a psychopath or a sociopath or a person has violent uh, epileptic seizures, that and you, if that causes somebody to do something, how is that any different than... And the more we find out about conditions, the more genetics and the brain research we find out, we're surely going to find out more causes 
right. in the brain for behaviors that are purely biological. How is that any distinct, any more distinct from these other causes of like schizophrenia yeah. or brain damage? People or, mock the Twinkie defense, they call it. Uh, the Harvey Milk uh, assassin case, Dan yeah. White. Oh, okay. Yeah. Dan White's defense was that he had a, a binge eating with junk food and that, that contributed right. to his... Uh, Right. And there's also the uh, Clockwork Orange defense <laughs> that was big in, in the U.K. in the, what is it, early 70s when the movie came out, that they had seen the movie and that, that pushed them to these ultraviolent acts. Right. Now, some of this stuff is silly. I'm not sure I want to sign on to all of that. But right. it, is, it is the case, as, we, as you said, as we come to know the causal roots of our actions more, these things are going to be more and more plausible. And, and it really does – what we're going to be grappling with with the issue is is determinism because our legal system assumes some free will on our behalf and it just wonders when does that free will stop yeah. happening mm-hmm. if you expose the fact that it's never going on that people are always determined by some something going on where does that legal our legal system yeah the, the many people are uncomfortable when somebody introduces for a killer's defense that he was abused as a child and now you're going to hear more right. of things of interactions of things like environmental determinism like childhood abuse with things like Genes, and he had a head injury, or you know, his mom dropped him on the head. He hormone imbalances. People are disconcerted by that because they think it implies that the person wasn't in control, or they didn't do it. And that seems to be an objection to determinism. Well, like we were saying at the beginning of this episode, just because something is disconcerting doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. And I think that we, uh, the, mm. it is disconcerting to think that somebody could get off or that explain away their behavior from that. But that doesn't mean that the explanation is not correct. Yeah. To the free will person, they say, oh, yes, he could have had a bad you know, brain genes and he could have been dropped on his head, but he should have known better and stopped and not pulled the trigger or something like that. Right. But it's meaningless to say that. Well, then, of course, we have problems for ethics in general. I think Stephen, if you've ever read Stephen Pinker's The Blank Slate, he talks Very about objections to determinism mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and distinguishes between a type of justice that's punitive like uh, in a free will system, like that'll teach you, you know, I'm going to give you five lashes for everything versus a justice system that simply is uh, protective uh, of people. Like, yes, let's, if somebody kills somebody, let's lock them up and remove them so that they don't do it again. Or that there's a punishment, almost like a Skinnerian system. Like if I kill somebody, they're going to lock me up. But it's distinct from saying, you bad person, you're to blame shame for that. On shame on you. Yeah. Which is, uh, from a deterministic system, meaningless to, yeah, to blame exactly. somebody. But, but corrective uh, imprisonment, uh, corrective punishment yeah. makes perfect sense, right? If someone commits a crime and rather than being shoved into jail where they learn how to do better crime, which is, is usually the case, if it's actually a correctional facility and they help them learn different things that they can do to get money and, and uh, learn new skills and learn why this is wrong, that sort of thing. If we're actually correcting the behavior, then we're adding these these deterministic influences to them yeah, the so that exactly. when they're released back out into the world, they have – they've they've gotten this corrective work. Exactly. These, these new – Deterministic influences. Determinism is that not, makes sense. Determinism is not as scary when you start to realize what Dave just pointed out here, mm-hmm. and that is that because our behavior can respond to outside influences, right. we do have somewhat of a basis for saying that we hold people responsible. Let's say you're getting angry at a friend. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know for what, for... Um, Make up a reason. Um, he broke my Wii. He broke your Nintendo Wii because he I, was being... I don't have a Wii, but if someone wants to give me one, I'll take it. <laughs> he, 
he he broke something of yours uh, mm-hmm. because he was being reckless and careless and everything else. Right. Well, he couldn't have helped doing that, right? When you freeze that instant of time, his stumbling over your Nintendo Wii and smashing it to bits, right? Um, it had to happen. There was there was nothing else that could have changed it. It was determined, mm-hmm. but. It does make sense to hold him responsible in some sense, even if that is the case. That is, if your response to him has the potential of influencing his future behavior, right? because your response, your social responses to people go into that causal matrix out of which the behavior happens. Mm-hmm. If your response saying, man, you're a total dick, you stepped all over my Nintendo Wii, right. you destroyed it to bits, and I think you should buy another one. If that response is going to prompt him to be more careful, watch where he steps next time, sure. then it makes total sense to hold them responsible. This is the kind of argument I think that B.F. Skinner advanced in some of his futuristic books like you know, Walden 2 or Behavior, where the world is stimulus and response and that, and that we can't avoid that. And better to have a humane administration of stimulus and response of punishments and rewards right. to, to shape people's behavior for correct things rather than deny that, that it's an influence at all. Right. And I have to say, as a parent, that makes absolute sense, and it's so clear. I, I mean, People know this intuitively it's when they're so dealing obvious. with people I mean, anyways. If, you know, the kids do something either accidentally or on purpose that they shouldn't do, um, and if you correct them on it in an instructional way, in a way that is going to help modify that behavior in the future... Right. It's not going to happen again. But otherwise, you know, if you're just punishing for the sake of punishing or if you're, you know, shaming, that's not going to get – that's not going to yield results. You have to correct the behavior. You have to help give these these other influences that will make it not happen again. People already do acknowledge and admit determinism in many areas of their lives. They're comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Think Think of the way we excuse people for certain things. The, the teenager who's acting rebunctious in, in the high school or something. Right. We, 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 uh, maybe he's hitting on girls relentlessly and, and stuff like that. And we, we don't let them off the hook totally for their actions, but we say, hey, you know, he's bottled up with all these hormones right. he's inside. 16, he's got he's, that yeah. on the brain. People, uh, you know, uh, be careful. Sally is being a little bit nasty today because, you know, she's on her period and that right. sort of thing. Uh, uh, People do that no, all the time. To feminists out there, yes. no commentary uh, there on whether or not PMS is real. Just <laughs> trying to establish that we, in our normal day-to-day behavior, we recognize... You sleep deprivation. That, it's less offensive. Yeah, okay. Good point. <laughs> I should go. have. Yes. She's cranky because she didn't get enough sleep. Right. We recognize if you change that soup of neurotransmitters, if that behavior will change as well. Right. So that's one way in which determinism is not threatening. But we are so trapped in that Christian worldview that Western society developed out of, which says you are a soul inside your brain. You are a free agent. You are completely mm-hmm. responsible for your actions, and you could do otherwise in any sort of situation that our thinking easily becomes schizophrenic on these it, it issues. It leads to a, a much more emotional response, too, rather than I think the deterministic thing leads to a much more dispassionate administration of rewards and punishments right. and, and judgments or lack thereof. If it's an, a, a free will view, you see that person as being willfully... I mean, look at like Dobson's parenting books, Ugh, The Strong-Willed exactly. Child. Don't, the kid is rambunctious because he's a little, essentially, uh, a, a satanic agent that, uh, of willfulness that you have to break his little will 
uh, and then then he's going to become godly. Whereas yeah. if you just simply viewed it as you know uh, this is a, he's a, a could be a, a temperament issue of his genes. It could be right. a he's had a poor learning history from previous lax parenting. Uh, you you become less emotional about that when you view it as just a product of determinism. I'm right. administrating a timeout with a non-emotional right. way because this is the only way he's going to learn. Well, and and like Dobson, the, the, when when you take that view of the autonomous agent in the head that's mm-hmm. doing everything, um, it makes sense to kind of do that that beat into submission or or um, the way that I think a lot of religious and authoritarian people try to deal with problems from terrorism to poverty, anything, is just to try to beat the situation into submission. Just make it right. Stand up. You know, do the right thing. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Instead of taking a look at, um, because if we aren't little autonomous agents, if we are the product of our environments, if we... If we are the sum total of millions of different influences, mm-hmm. then you have to look at this situation more uh, almost in, a, in an ecological way. You need to look at the total environment and what helps what helps foster uh, a situation where we're going to thrive, be safe, be comfortable. You, you need to start addressing social problems right. from it, – It makes it a, a much larger picture, which is – for uh, people who would rather just, you know, yeah. spank one child to correct their problem, it, it it makes it a little overwhelming because now we can't just we can't yeah. spank the child. We have to we can't call the person on yeah. we yeah. can't call the person on welfare a, a total freeloader and they should just do better. We can't call right. the the violent person or the pregnant teenager right. a, a sinner. You know what is what is causing teen would, pregnancy rates to go up? Right. You know. We need to look at the, a, a broader approach, a more mm-hmm. careful approach that will make meaningful change. Just shouting at the problem to change it won't make it different. Right. And, and this is really, in a way, this is an argument for how determinism could actually lead to a more moral society, to a more compassionate society. Because we're stuck in a situation where we have to be more empathetic with people and their situations. We have to hear them out, know where they're coming from, because... The only way we can make things better is to affect their behavior. And it doesn't add anything to say that somebody's evil or an evildoer. This is the problem with some of that language from the religious worldview. Of, because when you call somebody evil, it's, you don't have to go beyond that and explain it. They're just wicked. Right. Whereas if you say, you know, there's reasons why this person did this and let's find out what those reasons are, that is a more humane and a practical way. And conservatives and, and religious types hate that because they think it's somehow explaining it away. Oh, you're trying to say why this person did the evil right. and therefore you're justifying right. it. No, it's just simply pragmatic. If you want to stop this person from doing something in the future, calling them evil and, and wailing away at them with a with a rod, it's just noise. It, right. you know, yeah. What does it add to the situation? To, involved. To, it's, it's a really simplistic view where if, if you acknowledge that people are not completely responsible for their actions, that there are other things responsible, therefore we remove all responsibility and it's just going to be anarchy. Let's say the sharpshooter, the Texas sharpshooter actually survived that massacre. Would the Consistent determinists say the appropriate response is to just let him free, go back into society and, because he's not responsible for his actions. Of course not. We would lock him up, but we would lock him up for different reasons. We would lock him up because he's a threat. If we keep him out on the street, he might end up shooting, killing more people. Yeah, it's a more pragmatic approach as opposed to a ret- retributive approach. Right. <clears throat> but what right. about the other issue, which we, we kind of touched on when, when talking about identity, this this 
I in my head, this, this sense of self. When you look from a totally naturalistic perspective, we are, I, I think it's something like by the age of seven, every single atom that was in you when you were born is no longer in you. There is no like the, cohesive... Like the bad atom and the Eve sort of thing? Yeah, yes. No, each molecule oh, that you were born with is, is uh, constantly cycling out new ones coming in, new ones being replaced. So if we are totally material, okay, if there is, not, there is no soul, there's no ghost in the machine here, we're totally material, and our material is constantly being cycled, am I the same person that committed the crime Five minutes ago, five years ago, can we keep O.J. Simpson in jail ten years after the fact when all of his his molecules have cycled back out and he is no longer the same physical person that he once was? Well, he's gained a lot of weight, so he has additional atoms from somewhere else. Well, I think the question has to be then focusing again very firmly on who who is this person now? Are they reformed? Are they changed? I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that somebody who, is a, who was a murderer mm-hmm. through their time being incarcerated – now, it's not likely to happen with the prison systems we have up, right. which are based on the principle of retribution for the most part. Right. Despite all this talk to, oh, look, they have uh, cable television and three-square meals rhetoric that we hear. Right, right. Yeah, right, in between being anally raped in the showers and, uh, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and even when it when it doesn't go that far, we're still not. It's just stick them in a hole for X number of days or years and send them back out again. We're not doing anything right. to to correct. But again, shifting perspectives, um, that problem I think you brought up, Dave, almost vanishes because it's not a question of is this the same person responsible for the action, mm-hmm. and therefore do they still deserve to be in jail? The question is. Is this person rehabilitated to the point where they could re-enter society and not sure. be a risk of these crimes again? Now, that's going to be tough judgments to make a call right, on. Right. And, and I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate with that argument. Of, of course, it's not – when people use that argument, it's not as simple as, OK, I've hit seven years or whatever. Boom, I'm a new person. There's a cohesive narrative of this this sense of self. Everything builds on everything else. We don't – it's not a recycling process. Right. It's, a, it's a building process. Uh, notice how you're defining yourself now as a narrative, as a story, right. a collection of memories. Yep. We're no longer talking about the homunculus, the mm-hmm. little driver inside of your head right. that stares outside of your, your eyes as windows in the world and works knobs and levers and mm-hmm. moves us around. Um, we can't maintain that view anymore. There's, there's, no, there's no driver in the seat. And in fact, looking at um, what we know about our neurophysiology is that there really isn't some sort of command or control center yeah, in the, the head. No. The, the other area that aside from the extremes cases of criminal behavior that we've been talking about is simply self-knowledge. The implications of determinism for knowledge of oneself is that uh, we can't really equate then. We should pause when we equate our conscious thoughts with us, the real us, because we might not have complete access to the reasons that we do things. It leads to a right. certain reservation of uh, assigning like I know me I'm, I'm confident that I know what I want because well maybe you don't there, there's a book that I assigned my class called the, the, um, by Timothy Wilson called Strangers to Ourselves that mm. summarizes a lot of research like this that basically comes to the conclusion kind of like Freud did and that is that we only have a passing glancing view of sometimes of our true 
needs and wants, and many people are inaccurate at knowing why it is that they do what they do and predicting how we will feel, which is why we have a sense sometimes of saying, I know it's going to make me happy. If I get more money and I get a TV, I'll be happier. But then we're wrong. We're, we're constantly disappointing ourselves because we're bad at predicting future emotional yeah, cases. Right. That would be just one example. Affective forecasting is poor. Forgive me for using this word a, a little out of place, but I almost find something uh, liberating about that. The I idea you'd say that because of your Buddhist leanings. This is a uh, very Buddhist okay, way of looking yes, at this. Yes. Well, well, we'll talk about my Buddhist leanings later. But um, it, in the meantime, I'm not a Buddhist. I just find some things there appealing. Um, uh, but it does mean that your self-identity, that, that who you say you are, according to your narrative, um, is just a construction. Um, it's it doesn't it doesn't fix who you are, which is one of those Buddhist insights that many of them have through the contemplation and meditation is mindfulness is that you start to realize the difference between, say, your emotional reaction at any given moment right. uh, from from a more pu- uh, pure base of thinking that that's, you just notice that from a, a dispassionate view. Oh, that's I, I'm getting upset. That's what I do when these things. happen. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Without staking any claims on Buddhist metaphysics. Um, the simple belief that they have uh, that there is the doctrine of no self, that there is no soul, which is something we'd agree with. Right. It has led to some of those observations because uh, let's give an example for people who may not be familiar with this. There's a type of meditation in um, – it began with Theravada Buddhism, but it's it's prominent in a lot of Buddhist traditions. It's especially popular here in America where it's been ripped from its kind of ritual context but insight meditation, basically where you focus on something like your breath and you try not to have any or other conscious thoughts and you just watch what happens. And if, if you try to do that, and I encourage our listeners to do a little experiment, um, before you go to bed, turn off the lights and you know maybe set a timer for 10 minutes and just try to focus on nothing other than your inhaling and exhaling of your breath. Try to make there be no thoughts, anything else. Don't don't run away thinking about things and see what happens. And I can already tell you what's going to happen um, because it's, will shut it's, down. it's a pretty universal experience. People can't do it. Your mind will chatter away. It will continue to have thoughts. You'll keep on getting distracted from – from your breath and from experiencing that, you'll go off on all sorts of little rabbit trails in your consciousness. But the, the trick, the trick that's going on here is because you're monitoring for that, because you're watching your distractions, in a way, you're watching your own inner monologue as something that is outside of yourself. And it it's, leads it's to something a, a detachment detached. from them, right? Yes. And so there are cognitive behavioral therapies that talk about these these types of things as uh, decentering, detaching. For example, in, in traditional uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, they train people to look for thought processes, inner dialogues that aren't useful, that, that may not be real, and uh, self-defeating thinking and that sort of thing. And they train people to replace those with better, uh, more utilitarian thought patterns. But what they've noticed is a lot of people have had relief from their symptoms of anxiety and other things, regardless of whether or not they self-report having been able to successfully change their thought mm-hmm. patterns. Mm-hmm. So if they think they're a bad person or they they never do good enough for something, for example, 
uh, traditional CBT would say, well, you notice those, you identify them, and then you change them with, well, I am a person who can get things I'm done, or I'm I could be. There's no reason why I like would me. be. Um, but what they've noticed is some people have never been able to successfully do that. They they don't change their <laughs> thinking, but yet they feel relief of their symptoms. And why? Because they've begun to see those thoughts that appear in their heads, that inner monologue that they have as just any other sort of noise, like the sound of a car or truck going by outside or, or birds in a tree or something. It's just something that's there. And, the, and, and they the, don't uh, identify that as everything I think is me and this is what I'm expressing. And it just becomes mental chatter. With viewing other people that way as well, if you have that insight about yourself, you're able to see if, let's say, if Dave does something that I don't like, I, I, I can stop and say, I'm not equating Dave as a person with Dave's with that mood action, that with day that or his action. Thought, and right. because the fundamental attribution error. Yeah. So in when you re, when you have the insight of yourself of the decentering of saying I'm not the sum total of my emotional reactions, uh, you also apply that to other people as well, and it, it leads you not to be reactive to other people's negativity, because you could say, right. oh, you know, Dave is reacting that way for you know a reason that's not equivalent to Dave as a person or right. something. Right. Like that. I think it's frightening to people because we hang on to that idea of a of a homunculus, of a little guy inside our consciousness as ourselves. We we self-identify with that very strongly. It's it's we've been taught by our culture to think of things that way. But I think this is another example of what we just shared of how a deterministic worldview while it goes against the grain of what we're familiar with could really lead to a more compassionate, a more ethical society. If you look at Buddhist ethics, um, so we have an example of another culture that had ideas similar to what I think a naturalistic worldview is borne out. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at them, they're, they're very compassionate um, moral systems. And a lot of them start at the level of your own consciousness and really, in a sense, almost recognizing how we are determined by uh, things and, and trying to look at it. And viewing maladaptive behavior as a failure of enlightenment rather than a sign of inherent wickedness. Right. Instead of focusing on sin right. and atonement, they focus mm -hmm. on ignorance and enlightenment. I guess what we're discussing in an overall way is, is what might be called in philosophy um, versions of compatibilism. Right. It's the idea that a deterministic worldview need not be entirely at odds with uh, with this idea of us taking responsibility for our choices. We may in some sense be free because if you think about it, all that causation that's going on, of course, there's no you inside that ever completely determines without cause and effect what's going on. Even Even your will, even your feelings at the time have been determined by prior causes. Mm -hmm. But your beliefs, your values, those types of things – they go they are causal determinants as well they go into that chain they affect the future and so there is some some of the things that you find most essential to yourself who you are what you believe your 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 past integrity the way you've tried to live your life so far those condition future actions and so there is some sense in which we are authors of our behavior it's just not uncaused behavior Mm -hmm. um, it's not something you can take total credit or total blame for. You're part of a much broader system. You're part of a much broader environment. I don't know about you guys, though, but I don't feel threatened by that. 
I, I think there's something even a little bit romantic in that, that view of things. I, I agree. I'm a part of the world. There is an unbroken chain of causation and, and biology and society, and all these things intersect in my individual person to, to become to become me. There's a, a, a piece this week in the New York Times magazine by Stephen Pinker on the genome, and he kind of brings up some of these issues of finding out his genome, where you could get a printout hmm. of all yeah, your genes right. for this yeah. or for that, and he discusses these issues of the, the, the weird aspect of knowing that you have a risk for this sort of condition or this sort of behavior, and uh, I would recommend that for reading because he does talk about the issues of finding out more and more now scientifically about us. And knowing on one hand, because he is a determinist, that he's a determinist, but on the other hand, his his subjective perception of what that information does, you know, when you find out, well, am I really like that? Does this gene cause this thought or this impulse right. or whatever? Maybe I'm this way because of... Did he reason. choose to be a determinist? <laughs> Did he choose it? Or Some people are more determined to be determinists. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I suppose so. And now, from the Center for Naturalism... Tom Clark to talk a little bit more about the naturalistic approach to this issue. Our guest today is Tom Clark. Tom Clark is the director of the Center for Naturalism and author of the book Encountering Naturalism, A Worldview and Its Uses. Tom Clark, thanks for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Jeremy, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. What is the Center for Naturalism? Well, the Center for Naturalism is, is more or less a think tank, but it has a board of directors, and uh, I, I head it up. We're in the Boston area, and our, our mission, our, our goal is to promote naturalism as a comprehensive worldview, what we're now calling world of view naturalism, just to distinguish it from other kinds of naturalism. So the, the Center uh, is in the business of articulating what naturalism is as a worldview, uh, looking at its basis in epistemology, namely a science for the most part, science and other kinds of uh, intersubjective ways of knowing, and then uh, looking at what science has to, has to say about ourselves, the world we live in, and what science says is that we're in a single natural world. And that's what the, the basic premise of naturalism is, backed up by science, that there's a single natural world and human beings are natural creatures. So what the center is doing is promoting that view of ourselves uh, as a comprehensive cognitive context, a worldview, the same way a religion is a worldview, uh, a context which we, in which we can live our lives. We can uh, draw from it ideas about how we can best live together, what's real, who we are essentially, uh, and also naturalism uh, in this kind of broad context, uh, uh, broad uh, scope of it, uh, shows us uh, answers to uh, uh, existential concerns that religions ordinarily address. So, in that, uh, in this way, uh, a naturalistic worldview that the center is promoting really covers all the bases we'd like to think uh, in a philosophically and scientifically defensible way. That's one of the concerns that, or criticisms that I've heard a lot of um, Christian apologists make about atheists. You know, with now all the atheist bestsellers out there, you can find a lot of people who are telling you um, why you shouldn't believe in God, why you shouldn't believe in the supernatural. What you find a lot less of are people trying to articulate um, a positive alternative. And uh, uh, generally, do you are you satisfied with the presentation of naturalism that you might find in some of the uh, the Four Horsemen or some of the other 
atheist authors? Well, I haven't seen too much of a positive presentation of a comprehensive naturalism in, in, in those, those folks. I, I haven't read Dawkins' book. Uh, I've read Harris and Dennett, and uh, I haven't had, read Hitchens either. But my impression is that, uh, and, but again, I'd have to look into this more, more closely, is that they, their, their job has not been primarily to articulate a worldview. Their, their mission mostly has been to criticize theism. Uh, and religion, faith-based religion in particular. So uh, I, I don't want to um, cast aspersions when I'm not fully informed, but I think, uh, my guess is the Center for Naturalism uh, in promoting worldview naturalism is doing considerably more than the Four Horsemen have done in, in terms of saying what we can believe in positively as naturalists. Now, I, I would say that the new atheists are, of course, naturalistic in their approach, that's certainly true. It's uh, the core uh, philosophy that we all share, humanists and naturalists and skeptics and free thinkers. But uh, I haven't seen many other secular uh, groups, uh, except for perhaps the Center for Inquiry and the American Humanist Association. Those, those groups have done a fair amount of work in articulating a positive alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the, the, Center, the Center for Naturalism is clearly the, the group that's done the most in terms of talking about naturalism per se, as sort of the core philosophy, and also, importantly, applying it to ourselves. That's something that, that most other groups and authors have not done so far, which is to really look at who we are from a naturalistic standpoint. Atheism is one thing, but that's only you know a small bit of what a naturalistic uh, viewpoint uh, has to offer. So when we do adopt a consistently naturalistic approach, then what view of ourselves does develop uh, in your mind? How, how would our view of of uh, what it means to be a human being change? Right. Well, clearly, the the basic thing to say is that we're completely natural beings, natural creatures. We're completely part of the natural world. We're obviously evolved creatures. Uh, we all agree about that. Uh, but there's a further point to be made, in that, uh, which is often missed, I think, by secular uh, groups, which is that we don't uh, in any respect, transcend the cause and effect workings of the natural world, including culture. There's nothing about us as human beings, as individuals, that escapes uh, the law-like cause and effect workings of, of the world, biological, chemical, psychological, that science shows to exist. And this insight about us, that we are fully natural creatures, fully at the effect, embedded in natural causal processes, I think it's been underemphasized. In fact, it's usually ignored because it leads directly to the conclusion that we don't have a kind of strong free will that many people suppose we do have, including many, many non-theists, many naturalistic mm-hmm. folks suppose that we have a kind of, as I put it, contracausal freedom to have acted otherwise in the situation that we were involved in. And this simply isn't the case. If you look at things scientifically, our behavior flows out of conditions, our biological and environmental conditions, just like any other natural process. And that's a rather startling conclusion that I think uh, most secularists don't uh, really uh, kind of uh, shy away from, because it's controversial. We don't have certain kinds of freedom that many people think we do. We like to think we, we initiate behavior initiate choices in particular from some standpoint that is independent in some crucial respect from everything else in the world so that we become like little gods, little uh, uh, 
themselves that are self-made in some ultimate respect. And this is, uh, I think, what most people have in mind when they think about free will. They have this contra-causal idea that they contribute something that can't be explained in terms of biology, culture, um, peer group, parents, etc., all the influences coming to bear. Uh, they want there to be something special about themselves, such that they can take ultimate credit, perhaps, or blame people in a, in a strong kind of way that otherwise you couldn't. Because after all, if you took a causal view of human behavior, then you couldn't suppose that anyone uh, in, in making a decision could have done other than what they did in the particular situation they were, they were involved in. And so this, I think, is the, is the, is the hang-up. People want to be uh, strong. We've been conditioned to suppose we have to be these mm-hmm. kinds of self-made, uh, ultimately originating kinds of agents, independent of, of, of causation, to be held responsible, to take credit, to have morality, to have criminal responsibility. And, of course, this is not true. And many, many philosophers have seen this over the years, and many, um, many are seeing it these days, and many lay folk are starting to see this point, is that we don't have to be self-caused in any respect, any ultimate respect, to uh, hold each other responsible, to be moral, uh, to, to have human dignity, to, uh, to have what we, we generally want to have as human agents. And we don't lose power. Uh, we still have all our causal powers. I would agree with with everything you just said, but yet it is it is a perspective that really forces a, a certain amount of humility on you, and and, uh, and it's hard for that specter of fatalism not to pop up. I mean, if we right. if we don't uh, author all of our own decisions, um, if I'm determined by forces outside of my control, then why bother trying to be a, a better person and to develop yourself morally or intellectually? I mean, that's that's hard work. So why bother? <laughs> right. Why why bother? Indeed. Well, in in a way, we can't help but bother because that's we're determined to be creatures who care about the future, who care about reducing suffering in this world, who want to have good relationships, who want to better themselves and to have others we care about better themselves. So we can't help but having our our full set of motives and desires that relate to human flourishing. That's all determined, right? <laughs> so here we are. Uh, understanding that we're caused to be the way we are doesn't reduce the desire to have things work out. Hmm. After all, we don't know what the future is going to be. So the, as the philosophers like to say, the future is epistemically open to us. That means that we are, in a way, have to act in our own best interests from moment to moment, because otherwise things might not turn out the way we want. So this whole burden of working to uh, further ourselves, to make life worth living, is still completely with us when we accept a cause-and-effect deterministic view of who we are. What, what I think is the key is to see that, look, yes, understand that factors have created who we are in every respect. So we attribute causal power to those factors, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, but we can't at the same time say that we ourselves, as, as factors in the universe, have no causal power. Good point. We still do. You can't attribute causal power to what created me or you and withhold it for me or you. That's simply illogical. So we have just as much causal power as we did before this deterministic insight. We don't know what the future is going to be. So it's incumbent upon us. In fact, you'll find that you really don't have much choice about, about trying to behave in your own best interest, the best interest of your family, friends, and your culture. So the whole moral uh, project of human flourishing is still there 
in full force. So we don't lose motivation. We don't lose morality. Uh, everything, in a way, stays the same. But as you pointed out, there is a strong element of humility in all of this mm-hmm. and compassion because we discover, wow, yes, I see that person who perhaps did something unfortunate, criminal or whatever, or even, uh, even something wonderful. That person really couldn't have done otherwise given the situation they were in. So that generates, at least it does for me, and I know for many other people mm-hmm. that I've talked to about this, and as you just said, I, for yourself, a kind of humility, compassion. Uh, it militates against pride, against a certain kind of uh, blaming, uh, contempt, all of which is premised on the idea that people really could have done otherwise given their condition. This does sound fatalistic to many people, and, and most a good deal of my work at the Center for Naturalism is to reassure people <laughs> that... that uh, that naturalism, especially this causal view of ourselves, is not fatalistic, is not pessimistic, for the reasons that I've just laid out. But it's, it's, a, it's a difficult um, road to hoe. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't get it, uh, at least not right off the bat. So there's a lot of reassuring to be done. Well, it, it goes so much against uh, our intuition. And how does naturalism, I mean, the whole free will thing is hard enough to understand, but... but um, how could you explain the idea of a self within a purely naturalistic framework? Right. Well, we have a sense of self, and it looks as if that sense of self, of being in me, is something that the brain constructs, artfully mm-hmm. enough, because as philosopher Thomas Metzinger puts it in his fantastic book, which is called Being No One, highly recommend it to your listeners, uh, Metzinger suggests that the, the, the brain constructs this sense of ego, of self, in order to be adaptively egoistic so that we care about ourselves. It's actually not not his idea alone, but he makes a very vivid case for it. That we're adaptively egoistic because the brain constructs a sense of me that's at the center of my my subjective perspective out onto the world. So it's nothing really immaterial going on. Although it might seem that way. So when we do make a choice, what's what's really going on? Well, uh, as um, Joshua Green at Harvard uh, has discovered, looking at MRIs of people making moral decisions, what's really going on are brain systems interacting and reaching a decision based on your various motives and preconceptions and hopes and dreams, all competing neurally against one another and then resulting in a decision. Now, of course, hmm. we we don't experience that process as anything more than being puzzled, wanting wanting to have a decision made, muddling through things. But we don't experience the fact that it's all neural. It feels somehow mental. But right. we shouldn't let that that feeling mislead us into thinking there's something immaterial going on. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, is what if you take ex, uh, first person experience as your uh, reasons for deciding what's true, you might well be misled into thinking, oh. Yeah, I just can decide whatever I want to do, no matter what my, no matter what my brain is doing, hmm. which would be wrong, of course, because you are your brain. You are what your brain is doing. So it's, right. it's a rather different picture that the naturalistic view of ourselves holds up. And it's not a picture that many people find particularly reassuring at first, but you can get used to it. And then it has, I think, all kinds of positive consequences. And what would be some of those uh, some of those positive consequences? I mean, how would uh, would it change? Is this just kind of 
a, a philosophical exercise um, looking at naturalism as opposed to supernaturalism? Or does this at some point have like real actual implications for life and for society? Oh, I think very much the latter. I mean, it is a philosophical exercise in the sense that it's, it's an important thing for us, everyone to do, to answer this question about who we are, essentially. So it's philosophical in the best way. In fact, it's what I call philo-scientific. It involves philosophy and science conjointly mm. in answering these fundamental questions about who we are, what the world is really like. And once we've done that, then yes, we do draw practical and ethical conclusions about what we should be doing and what we can do from this point of view. For instance, when it comes to things like criminal justice. If you take a naturalistic view of ourselves and understand that we are likely fully determined, or better, put better, that there's nothing ultimately self-created about ourselves, mm -hmm. then we can't, it seems to me, put stock in retributive justifications for punishment, mm -hmm. because people really couldn't have done otherwise in the situation they were in. And it's the insight that you could have done otherwise that to, that it seems to me backs up the intu intuition that people deserve punishment. They strongly deserve to be punished, whether it does any good or not. Hmm. And that's the definition of retribution. Retribution is the idea that you should be punished whether or not it serves any public good or personal benefit for you or anyone else. You simply deserve to suffer. That idea, it seems to me, goes by the boards. We get rid of it if we take a naturalistic point of view. So right there, we have a central material, practical, and far-reaching implication of naturalism uh, about criminal justice, about how we should treat one another when we do wrong. And let me repeat, our moral compass is still intact. It really is right and wrong. Right. There really are bad things that people do to each other. I'm not saying that we don't. It's just that people act badly for reasons, for causes. And once we understand those, then we won't suppose that they could have done otherwise, in the situation they were in, and that will lead us to treat them more compassionately. The other big implication is, besides compassion and getting rid of retribution, is that we'll understand why people behave the way they do, and therefore, therefore be more knowledgeable and more proactive in changing the conditions that produce bad behavior, so that people are less likely to become, say, criminals, addicts, etc. So all what this does is, the causal view gives us compassion and Crucially, it gives us control. Whereas if you believe in free will, if you think there's something about you or me that acts independently of cause and effect, then we don't have that much control because there's always something about an individual that could do otherwise, right? No matter mm -hmm. what the situation was. But no, that, since that's not true, we gain power, causal power from knowing what the factors are that actually do influence behavior. Or, of course, we can't know them all, but at least we'll be motivated to look for them. Isn't that idea of a self-determining kind of ego, isn't that kind of enshrined in our in our legal system already and in our culture at large? I mean, how realistic is it that we would actually ever be able to change that? Well, uh, first of all, I'll say that um, many philosophers, in fact most, are probably in agreement with me, with the Center for Naturalism, and mm -hmm. I think you, that we don't have this kind of soul and we don't have this kind of contra-causal freedom. So already the act the academy is fully on board with a, with a naturalistic understanding of ourselves. As far the, as the culture goes, people are making the argument, besides the center, there are philosophers, legal and otherwise, 
making, pitching the argument to the culture that we should drop this idea. Now, whether it's realistic to suppose that the culture will ever, ever get hip <laughs> to the idea that they don't have this kind of freedom uh, and drop the idea of the soul and its, and its unconditioned free will, that's, you know, that's up in the air. I think it's going to be a long time, frankly, mm-hmm. before this idea gains traction. But it's coming up more and more, so I'm hopeful that, I don't know, hmm. uh, in a decades, a hundred years, you know, sometimes in, in my uh, darker moments, I think, well, maybe this is a philosophy for the 25th century. <laughs> <laughs> but then I say, no, buck up, old oh, man. Uh, things uh, are looking up. We've got Joshua Green writing about this hmm. uh, in his papers. Dan Dennett always argues against contracausal free will. Uh, most philosophers out there who look at the agency and free will problems are don't suppose that there's anything supernatural about us. But you're right. The culture, by and large, has this dualistic idea of the soul apart from the brain, of our freedom apart from biology and culture. But that's, in a way, the challenge and the interesting part of, of, mm-hmm. of doing all this, which is you know, we're really uh, pushing at a fundamental assumption of the culture. And uh, if we can change it, then I think uh, good things will happen. Sometimes when talking about this issue, and it occurs to me that, you know, maybe this would have all been easier if Western culture and science didn't come out of that that Judeo-Christian framework, which emphasized uh, the, the ego so much. I mean, if we had come out of a more of an Eastern perspective, it, it does seem that some of these ideas— uh, if you can say hip to it, then I can say some of these ideas jive pretty well right. <laughs> uh, with with uh, a more Buddhist, uh, a more Eastern perspective. I, you're absolutely right. And then, in fact, I meant to bring that up, and thank you for doing it, which is that we we are in a culturally bound situation here, where, as you point out, had we been raised uh, in a more collectivist, non-individualist culture like China or India, mm-hmm. this idea of the fiercely independent, radically autonomous self wouldn't be burdening us. It wouldn't be preventing us from seeing the causal connections that obviously exist from a scientific standpoint, right? As you were saying a while back, it's, it's kind of commonsensical that, or if, if you look at it uh, with, at all dispassionately, we can see our causal connection in every respect to our environment, to our biology. This is what science does for a living, right? Mm-hmm. But it's only our cultural heritage of the idea of contracausal free will of the soul and carried over into Western culture, the bootstrapping, radically autonomous self, right? The self-made mm-hmm. man is a central myth in our culture. Right. So we, we are burdened in this, this respect. We're, we have a blind spot, and we suppose it's the universal truth, that of course people have this kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have it, then we're sunk. But neither one is true. We don't have that kind of freedom, and without it, we'll continue to be, in fact, be better off. Uh, than we were before because we'll become more compassionate, we'll have more control, and we'll see ourselves fully connected to the world in a way that uh, we currently don't. And I think that's the basis for a kind of, uh, dare I say, naturalistic spirituality, although people don't like the word. It uh, doesn't have anything to do with spirits in the dualistic mm-hmm. sense. But it, uh, it unites us with uh, the fundamental reality that, with, that science shows to be the case. So I think it's, it's fully to our advantage to question this myth of the autonomous, Mm -hmm. radically autonomous self of the soul, and then reap the benefits. Hmm. And that's what the Center for Naturalism is trying to do. It's a very big agenda, very big indeed. And and, as you were saying, a lot of people in the free thought community uh, 
either aren't aware of it or resist it. And that's not surprising. Right. We can, the thing is, it, from our perspective, we can understand why they would resist this idea so strongly. They're determined to. They're determined <laughs> to. And we can com- be, feel compassionate because they will, tooth and nail, they will resist. I had an interesting conversation with a guy from Free Thought Action at a conference just mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. It was hammer and tongs, back and forth. No, we have to have this kind of freedom. <laughs> what do you mean we don't have this? And I tried to argue with him, and, uh, which I enjoy. Uh, Certainly. The, but, which, you know, it's fun to, to get into these fundamental issues of mm-hmm. who we are with people. Uh, but uh, many people will, will resist, and hey, the, that's uh, how could we, how could it be otherwise? Given the, how we've been brought up, it's an unstated assumption that gets reinforced again and again and again that we have this kind of strong free will. Mm-hmm. And hey, uh, to challenge that is to challenge a lot of people's yeah. most central uh, identity. So it's not it's no wonder it's a it's, it's a tough proposition. You mentioned uh, exploring. How did you put it? Uh, uh, a naturalistic spirituality. I think. Yeah. You rightly pointed out that a lot of people that that bothers them. Um, it doesn't bother me personally. I mean, I think that's uh, uh, maybe the the word is a bit of an issue, but that reality, that kind of that emotional life that tries to bring in our overall view of the cosmos and and somehow grounded in in immediate experience and 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 the mundane. I think that's a very powerful and important part of people's lives. I find that people who do not accept the supernatural spend so much time trying to convince people that you uh, won't lose much if you adopt this point of view, but we don't always emphasize that there might be something to gain. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Uh, How has looking at the world from a naturalistic perspective, um, how has that changed your views spiritually? Well, what what it does is that it puts things in the largest possible perspective that provided by cosmology and science. That, that's one thing. Uh, it's Carl Sagan pointing out to you <laughs> the billions and billions that, uh, of, of solar systems, of galaxies, of planets, of stars, of possible cosmoses. So that's a pretty mind-boggling context to put yourself into. Mm-hmm. And so you can have a kind of emotional resonance with all of that in the same way that other people might have resonance with the idea of a loving, personal God. Mm-hmm. I mean... Although of course it is impersonal, we don't. Uh, that's true. We can't. Uh, we can't. Naturalists can't give people the same kind of personal comfort, perhaps. That's right. But it is something that's bigger than ourselves. And right. And the thing that I like to say to people is, look, what this gives us is a kind of excitement, a kind of astonishment, a kind of wondering, uh, astonishment and awe at the fact of existence, where. Instead, if you have a God presiding over everything, over everything things become, become tame. They become mm-hmm. predictable. Here, we are caught up in a situation which, if you look at it honestly, cannot be construed as for anything. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is an inspiring, <laughs> a startling, astonishing prospect to be wrapped up in. We are not here for any particular reason. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to sort of wonder, be in awe, be astonished, and then construct our own meanings. So what the naturalistic spirituality does, it gives us this cosmic backdrop against which we have to define ourselves. Hmm. It's kind of an existential standpoint, but without the uh, 
without the loss of morale. Well, it's, it's not shaking your fist at the universe. Mm-hmm. It's finding yourself completely part of it and awestruck and astonished that anything should be going on at all. That, and we can't construe it, it doesn't have a purpose that we can discern. And that's liberating. That's to be in what uh, a wonderful Australian doctor, Jeff Doms, who participates in a religious, religious naturalism e-list that I'm on, he calls it the wild universe. <laughs> and yes, to me, that's exactly right. Uh, I'd much rather be in a wild universe than a tame one. Like in the sense of a, in, of a frontier, almost? A frontier, but also the fact that it's unsupervised. It cannot be given or uh, a purpose. We cannot construe it. It is prior to any of that. Mm-hmm. If you had a god sitting in there directing things, we could always ask that god, okay, now why are you here, buddy? What's the point of your, you being here? <laughs> the god, if he or she were honest, would have to scratch his or her head and say, you know, You've got something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so God doesn't really solve the problem of meaning if you, if you were honest about it. It would simply be part of something larger, which uh, in its totality can never be assigned a meaning or a purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's to be wild in this sense of being unconstruable, you know, unfathomable. And that's the exciting part, I think, of a naturalistic spirituality. Uh, so that, you know, that's, the po- to me, very positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but of course, many people might find it if they're used, especially if they're coming out of the Christian uh, tradition, they'll find it completely unsettling. Uh, <laughs> well, that's that's why people like you and I are out there trying to show others that uh, you know what, there's not as much to be afraid of here, and that it offers something on its own. Um, Thank you for joining us, and, and before uh, before I let you go, uh, is there anywhere that you might direct people towards uh, to where they might learn more about uh, what you guys do at the Center for Naturalism? Sure. Well, the the, uh, the Center for Naturalism uh, homepage is centerfornaturalism.org. That's one word, centerfornaturalism.org. Then we have a companion website, uh, which is where most of the updated work is put. It's called simplynaturalism.org. So go to naturalism.org for the latest. In fact, we just... Uh, our, our uh, most recent newsletter newsletter just uh, went out, so you can have a look at that. Uh, plenty of links there on um, related uh, re- related stuff. Uh, naturalism.org has been in existence 10 years, so the archives are rather large at this point. So, so there's plenty to explore, and uh, so that'd be great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Tom Clark, for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Jeremy, it's been a pleasure, and keep up your good work. All right. Well, that's um, that's our two-parter on Free Willy and Determinator. Thank thank Luke for that one, by the way. It's Judgment Day, and I'm determined to be this way. <laughs> My God. Um, I know now why you cry, but it's something I could never do. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to, to add about? <clears throat> no, I think we've beaten that one on the ground. I think we yeah. have. We'll leave it there. And that's all for this week. Um, you are predetermined to listen to our next episode. We hope. We, we hope. Or or not. Who knows? Um, you're all going to hell anyway. Please I, I remember. To Calvinist, <laughs> so. So, you're, so you're somewhat uh, used to this determinism talk. A, a little, little bit. bit. Yes. Um, well, please be sure to send in your questions, comments, challenges, and uh, other feedback to doubtcast at gmail.com and we'll see you next week.
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.